0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, they? You tried to get into the locked drawer to today, be. didn't you? You tried. How do, do the dead come back, day, Mother? Oak of Oakhurst by Vernon Lee. To Count Peter Batulin, the Tagancha, Government of Kiev, Russia. My dear Batulin, do you remember me telling you one afternoon that you sat upon the hearthstool at Florence? the story of Mrs. Oak, of Oakhurst? You thought it a fantastic tale, you lover of fantastic things, and urged me to write it out at once, although I protested that, in such matters, to write is to exercise, to dispel the charm, and that printer's ink chases away the ghosts that may pleasantly haunt us as efficaciously as gallons of holy water. But if, as I suspect, you will now put down any charm that story may have possessed to the way in which we had been working ourselves up that firelit evening with all manner of fantastic stuff, if, as I fear, the story of Mrs. Oak of Oakhurst will strike you as stale and unprofitable, the sight of this little book will serve at least to remind you, in the middle of your Russian summer, that there is such a season as winter, such a place as Florence and such a person as your friend, Vernon Lee. Kensington, July 1886. One. That sketch up there with the boy's cap. Yes, that's the same woman. I wonder whether you can guess who she was. A singular being, is she not? The most marvellous creature quite that I have ever met. A wonderful, elegance, exotic, far-fetched, poignant an artificial, perverse sort of grace and research in every outline and movement and arrangement of head and neck and hands and fingers. Here are a lot of pencil sketches I made while I was preparing to paint her portrait. Yes, there's nothing but her in the whole sketchbook. Mere scratches, but they may give some idea of a marvellous, fantastic kind of grace. Here she is, leaning over the staircase, and, and here, sitting in the swing, Here she is walking quickly out of the room. That's her head. You see, she isn't really handsome. Her forehead's too big and her nose too short. This uh, gives no idea of her. It was altogether a question of movement. Look at the strange cheeks, hollow and rather flat. Well, when she smiled, she had the most marvellous dimples here. There was something exquisite and uncanny about it. Yes, I began the picture, but it was never finished. I did the husband first. I wonder who has his likeness now. Help me to move these pictures away from the wall. Thanks. This is her portrait. A huge wreck. I don't suppose you can make much of it. It's merely blocked in and seems quite mad. You see, my idea was to make her leaning against a wall. There was one hung with yellow that seemed almost brown. So as to bring out the silhouette. It was very singular. I should have chosen that particular wall. It does look rather insane in this condition, but I like it. It it has something of her. I would frame it and hang it up, only people would ask questions. Yes, you've guessed right. It is Mrs. Oak of Oakhurst. I forgot you had relations in that part of the country. Besides, I suppose the newspapers were full of it at the time. You didn't know that it all took place under my eyes. I can scarcely believe now that it did. It all seems so distant. Vivid but unreal like a thing of my own invention. It really was much stranger than anyone guessed. People could no more understand it than they could understand her. I doubt whether anyone ever understood Alice Oak, beside myself. You mustn't think me unfeeling. She was a marvellous, weird, exquisite creature. But one couldn't feel sorry for her. I felt much sorrier for the wretched creature of a husband. It seemed such an appropriate end for her. I fancy she would have liked it, could she have known. Ah, I shall never have another chance of painting such a portrait as I wanted. She seemed sent to me from heaven, or the other place. You've never heard the story in detail? Well, I don't usually mention it because people are so brutally stupid or sentimental but I'll tell you it now. Let me see. It's too dark to paint any more today, so I can tell you it now. Wait, <laughs> I must turn her face to the wall. Ah, oh, she was a marvellous creature. Two. You remember three years ago my telling you I'd let myself in for painting a couple of uh, Kentish squireen. I really couldn't understand what had possessed me to say yes to that man. A friend of mine had brought him one day to my studio, Mr. Oak of Oakhurst, that was the name on his card. He was a very tall, very well-made, very good-looking young man, with a beautiful fair complexion, beautiful fair moustache, and beautifully fitting clothes, absolutely like a hundred other young men you can see any day in the park, and absolutely uninteresting from the crown of his head to the tip of his boots. Mr. Oak, who had been lieutenant in the blues before his marriage, was evidently extremely uncomfortable on finding himself in a studio. He felt misgivings about a man who could wear a velvet coat in town, but at the same time he was nervously anxious not to treat me in the very least like a tradesman. He walked round my place, looked at everything with the most scrupulous attention, stammered out a few complimentary phrases and then, looking at his friend for assistance, tried to come to the point, but failed. The point, which the friend kindly explained, was that Mr. Oak was desirous to know whether my engagements would allow of my painting him and his wife, and what my terms would be. The poor man blushed perfectly crimson during this explanation, as if he had come with the most improper proposal, and I noticed the only interesting thing about him, a very odd, nervous frown between his eyebrows, a perfect double gash, a thing which usually means something abnormal. A mad doctor of my acquaintance calls it the maniac frown. When I had answered, he suddenly burst out into a rather confused explanation. His wife, Mrs. Oak, had uh, seen some of my pictures, painting portraits at the, or what do you call it, academy. She had, in short, they had made a very great impression upon her. Mrs. Oak had a great taste for art. She was, in short, extremely desirous of having her portrait, and his, painted by me, etc. My wife, he suddenly added, is a remarkable woman. I don't know whether you will think her handsome, she isn't exactly, you know, but she's awfully strange. And Mr. Oak of Oakhurst gave a little sigh, and frowned that curious frown. As if so long a speech and so decided an expression of opinion had cost him a great deal. It was a rather unfortunate moment in my career. A very influential sitter of mine, you remember the fat lady with the crimson curtain behind her, had come to the conclusion, or had been persuaded, that I had painted her old and vulgar, which in fact she was. Her whole clique had turned against me. The newspapers had taken up the matter and for the moment I was considered a painter to whose brushes no woman would trust her reputation. Things were going badly. So I snapped, but too gladly, at Mr. Oak's offer and settled to go down to Oakhurst at the end of a fortnight. But the door had scarcely closed upon my future sitter when I began to regret my rashness, and my disgust at the thought of wasting a whole summer upon the portrait of a totally uninteresting Kentish squire and his doubtless equally uninteresting wife grew greater and greater as the time for execution approached. I remember so well the frightful temper in which I got into the train for Kent, and the even more frightful temper in which I got out of it, at the little station nearest to Oakhurst. It was pouring floods. I felt a comfortable fury at the thought my canvases would get nicely wetted before Mr. Oaks' coachman had packed them on the top of the wagonette. It was just what served me right for coming to this confounded place to paint these confounded people. We drove off in the steady downpour. The roads were a mass of yellow mud. The endless flat grazing grounds under the oak trees, after having been burnt to cinders in a long drought, were turned into a hideous brown sop. The country seemed intolerably monotonous. My spirits sank lower and lower. I began to meditate upon the modern Gothic country house with the usual amount of Morris furniture, liberty rugs and mewdy novels to which I was doubtless being taken. My fancy painted very vividly the five or six little oaks. That man certainly must have at least five children, the aunts and sisters-in-law and cousins, the eternal routine of afternoon tea and lawn tennis. Above all, it pictured Mrs. Oak the bouncing, well-informed model housekeeper, electioneering, charity-organising young lady whom any such individual as Mr. Oak would regard in the light of a remarkable woman. And my spirit sank within me, and I cursed my avarice in accepting the commission, my spiritlessness in not throwing it over while yet there was time. We had, meanwhile, driven into a large park, or rather a long succession of grazing gowns, dotted about with large oaks, under which the sheep were huddled together for shelter from the rain. In the distance, blurred by the sheets of rain, was a line of low hills with a jagged fringe of bluish firs and a solitary windmill. It must be a good mile and a half since we had passed the house, and there was none to be seen in the distance. Nothing but the undulation of sere grass sopped brown beneath the huge blackish oak trees and whence arose from all sides a vague, disconsolate bleating. At last the road made a sudden bend, and disclosed what was evidently the home of my sitter. It was not what I had expected. In a dip in the ground a large red-brick house with the rounded gables and high chimney-stacks of the time of James I, a forlorn, vast place, set in the midst of the pasture-land, with no trace of garden before it, and only a few large trees indicating the possibility of one to the back. No lawn either, but on the other side of the sandy dip which suggested a filled-up moat, a huge oak, short, hollow, with wreathing blasted black branches, upon which only a handful of leaves shook in the rain. It was not at all what I had pictured to myself the home of Mr. Oak of Oakhurst. My host received me in the hall, a large place, panelled and carved, hung round with portraits up to its curious ceiling, vaulted and ribbed like the inside of a ship's hull. He looked even more blonde and pink and white, more absolutely mediocre in his tweed suit, and also, I thought, even more good-natured and duller. He took me into his study, a room hung round with whips and fishing tackle in place of books, "'while my things were being carried upstairs. "'It was very damp, and a fire was smouldering. "'He gave the embers a nervous kick with his foot and said, "'as he offered me a cigar, "'You you must excuse my not introducing you at once to Mrs. Oak, "'my my wife, in short. "'I believe my wife is asleep. "'Is uh, Mrs. Oak unwell?' I asked, "'a sudden hope flashing across me "'that I might be off the whole matter.' Uh, Oh, no, uh, Alice is is quite well, at least uh, quite as well as she usually is. Uh, My wife, he added after a minute, and in a very decided tone, does not enjoy very good health. Uh, A nervous constitution. Oh, no, not at all ill. Uh, Nothing at all serious, you know. Uh, Only nervous, the doctors say. Mustn't be worried or excited, the doctors say. It requires lots of repose, that sort of thing. There was a dead pause. This man depressed me. I knew not why. He had a listless, puzzled look, very much out of keeping with his evident, admirable health and strength. "Um, I suppose you're a great sportsman, I asked from sheer despair, nodding in the direction of the whips and guns and fishing rods. "Oh, Oh, no, not now. I was once. I have given up all that, he answered. "'standing with his back to the fire "'and staring at the polar bear beneath his feet. "Uh, "'I have no time for all that now,' he added, "'as if an explanation would do. "'Married man, you know. "'Would you like to come up to your rooms?' "'He suddenly interrupted himself. "'I have had one arranged for you to paint in. Uh, "'My wife said you'd prefer a north light. "'If that one doesn't suit, you can have your choice of any other.' "'I followed him out of the study, through the vast entrance hall.' In less than a minute I was no longer thinking of Mr. and Mrs. Oak and the boredom of doing their likeness. I was simply overcome by the beauty of this house, which I had pictured modern and philistine. It was, without exception, the most perfect example of an old English manor house that I had ever seen, the most magnificent intrinsically and the most admirably preserved. Out of the huge hall, with its immense fireplace of delicately carved and inlaid grey and black stone, and its rows of family portraits, reaching from the wainscoting to the oaken ceiling, vaulted and ribbed like a ship's hull, opened the wide, flat-stepped staircase, the parapet surmounted at intervals by heraldic monsters, the wall covered with oak carvings of coats of arms, leafage and little mythological scenes painted a faded red and blue, and picked out with tarnished gold, which harmonized with the tarnished blue and gold of the stamped leather that reached to the oak cornice, again delicately tinted and gilded. The beautifully damascened suits of court armor looked, without being at all rusty, as if no modern hand had ever touched them. The very rugs underfoot were of sixteenth-century Persian make, The only things of today were the big bunches of flowers and ferns arranged in majolica dishes upon the landings. Everything was perfectly silent. Only from below came the chimes, silvery like an Italian palace fountain of an old-fashioned clock. It seemed to me that I was being led through the palace of the sleeping beauty. What a magnificent house! I exclaimed, as I followed my host through a long corridor, also hung with leather, wainscoted with carvings, and furnished with big wedding coffers and chairs that looked as if they came out of some Van Dyck portrait. In my mind was the strong impression that all this was natural, spontaneous, that it had about it nothing of the picturesqueness which swell studios have taught to rich and aesthetic houses. Mr. Oak misunderstood me. Uh, it's a nice old place, he said, but, but it's too large for us. You see, my wife's health does not allow of our having many guests, and there are no children. I thought I noticed a vague complaint in his voice, and he evidently was afraid that they might have seen something of the kind, for he added immediately, uh, I, I don't care for children, one jack straw, you know, myself. Can't understand how anyone can for my part. If ever a man went out of his way to tell a lie, I said to myself, Mr. Oak of Oakhurst was doing so at the present moment. When he had left me in one of the two enormous rooms that were allotted to me, I threw myself into an armchair and tried to focus the extraordinary imaginative impression which this house had given me. I am very susceptible to such impressions, and besides a sort of spasm of imaginative interest sometimes given to me by certain rare and eccentric personalities, I know nothing more subduing than the charm, quieter and less analytic, of any sort of complete and out-of-the-common-run sort of house. To sit in a room like the one I was sitting in, with the figures of the tapestry glimmering grey and lilac and purple in the twilight, the great bed, columned and curtained looming in the middle and the embers reddening beneath the overhanging mantelpiece of inlaid Italian stonework. A vague scent of rose leaves and spices put into the china bowls by the hands of ladies, long since dead, while the clock downstairs sent up every now and then, its faint silvery tune of forgotten days, filled the room. To do this is a special kind of voluptuousness, peculiar and complex, and indescribable like the half-drunkenness of opium or hashish, and which to be conveyed to others in any sense as I feel it would require a genius, subtle and heady, like that of Baudelaire. After I had dressed for dinner, I resumed my place in the armchair, and resumed also my reverie, letting all these impressions of the past, which seemed faded like the figures in the Arras, but still warm like the embers in the fireplace, still sweet and subtle like the perfume of the dead rose leaves and broken spices in the china bowls, permeate me and go to my head of oak and oak's wife, I did not think. I seemed quite alone, isolated from the world, separated from it in this exotic enjoyment. Gradually the embers grew paler, the figures in the tapestry more shadowy, The columned and curtained bed loomed out, vaguer. The room seemed to fill with greyness, And my eyes wandered to the mullioned bow-window, Beyond whose panes, between whose heavy stonework, Stretched a greyish-brown expanse of sore and sodden park-grass, Dotted with big oaks, while far off, Behind a jagged fringe of dark Scotch firs, The wet sky was suffused with the blood red of the sunset. Between the falling of the raindrops from the ivy outside, there came, fainter or sharper, the recurring bleating of the lambs separated from their mothers, a forlorn, quavering, eerie little cry. I started up at a sudden rap at my door. Haven't you heard the gong for dinner? asked Mr. Oak's voice. I had completely forgotten his existence. Three. I feel that I cannot possibly reconstruct my earliest impression of Mrs. Oak. My recollection of them would be entirely coloured by my subsequent knowledge of her, whence I conclude that I could not at first have experienced the strange interest and admiration which that extraordinary woman very soon excited in me. Interest and admiration, be it well understood, of a very unusual kind, as she was herself, a very unusual kind of woman. And I, if you choose, am a rather unusual kind of man. But I can explain that better anon. This much is certain, that I must have been immeasurably surprised at finding my hostess and future sitter so completely unlike everything I had anticipated. Or no, now I come to think of it, I scarcely felt surprised at all. Or if I did, that shock of surprise could have lasted but an infinitesimal part of a minute. The fact is, that having once seen Alice Oak in the reality, it was quite impossible to remember that one could have fancied her at all different. There was something so complete, so completely unlike everyone else in her personality, that she seemed always to have been present in one's consciousness, although present, perhaps, as an enigma. Let me try and give you some notion of her, and not that first impression, whatever it may have been, but the absolute reality of her as I gradually learned to see it. To begin with, I must repeat and reiterate over and over again that she was, beyond all comparison, the most graceful and exquisite woman I have ever seen but with a grace and an exquisiteness that had nothing to do with any preconceived notion or previous experience of what goes by those names. Grace and exquisiteness recognized at once as perfect, but which was seen in her for the first, and probably, I do believe, for the last time. It is conceivable, is it not, that once in a thousand years there may arise a combination of lines, a system of movements, an outline, a gesture, which is new unprecedented and hits off exactly our desires for beauty and rareness. She was very tall, and I suppose people would have called her thin. I don't know, for I never thought about her as a body, bones, flesh, that sort of thing, but merely as a wonderful series of lines and a wonderful strangeness of personality. Tall and slender, certainly, but with not one item what makes up our notion of a well-built woman. She was as straight, I mean, she had as little of what people call figure as a bamboo. Her shoulders were a trifle high, and she had a decided stoop. Her arms and her shoulders she never once wore uncovered. But this bamboo figure of hers had a suppleness and a stateliness, a play of outline with every step she took, that I can't compare to anything else. There was in it something of the peacock, and something also of the stag, But above all, it was her own. I wish I could describe her. I wish, alas, I wish, I wish, I wish, I have wished a hundred thousand times I could paint her, as I see her now, if I shut my eyes, even if it were only a silhouette. There, I see her so plainly, walking slowly up and down a room, the slight highness of her shoulders just completing the exquisite arrangement of lines made by the strape, just completing the exquisite arrangement of lines made by the straight, supple back, the long, exquisite neck, the head with the hair cropped in short pale curls, always drooping a little, except when she would suddenly throw it back and smile, not at me, nor at anyone, nor at anything that had been said, but as if she alone had suddenly seen or heard something, with the strange dimple, in her thin pale cheeks, and the strange whiteness in her full, wide opened eyes. At the moment when she had something of the stag in her movement. But where is the use of talking about her? I don't believe, you know, that even the greatest painter can show what is the real beauty of a very beautiful woman in the ordinary sense. Titians and Tintoretto's women must have been miles handsomer than they have made them. Something And that's the very essence, always escapes. Perhaps because real beauty is as much a thing in time, a thing like music, a succession, a series, as in space. Mind you, I'm speaking of a woman beautiful in the conventional sense. Imagine then how much more so in the case of a woman like Alice Oak. And if the pencil and brush imitating each line and tint can't succeed, how is it possible to give even the vaguest emotion with mere wretched words, words possessing only a wretched abstract meaning and impotent conventional association? To make a long story short, Mrs. Oak of Oakhurst was, in my opinion, to the highest degree exquisite and strange, an exotic creature whose charm you can no more describe than you could bring home the perfume of some newly discovered tropical flower by comparing it with the scent of a cabbage rose or a lily. That first dinner was gloomy enough. Mr. Oak, Oak of Oakhurst as the people down there called him, was horribly shy, consumed with the fear of making a fool of himself before me and his wife, I then thought. But that sort of shyness did not wear off. And I soon discovered that, although it was doubtless increased by the presence of a total stranger, it was inspired in Oak not by me, but by his wife. He would look every now and then as if he were going to make a remark, and then evidently restrain himself, and remain silent. It was very curious to see this big, handsome, manly young fellow, who ought to have had any amount of success with women, suddenly stammer and grow crimson in the presence of his own wife. Nor was it the consciousness of stupidity, for when you got him alone, Oak, although always slow and timid, had a certain amount of ideas, and very defined political and social views, and a certain childlike earnestness, and desire to attain certainty and truth which was rather touching. On the other hand, Oak's singular shyness was not, so far as I could see, the result of any kind of bullying on his wife's part. You can always detect, if you have any observation, the husband or the wife who is accustomed to be snubbed, to be corrected by his or her better half. There is a self-consciousness in both parties, a habit of watching and fault-finding, of being watched and found fault with. This was clearly not the case at Oakhurst. Mrs. Oak evidently did not trouble herself about her husband, in the very least. He might say or do any amount of silly things without rebuke, or even notice, and he might have done so had he chosen ever since his wedding day. You felt at once Mrs. Oak simply passed over his existence. I cannot say she paid much attention to anyone's, even to mine. At first, I thought it an affectation on her part. But there was something far-fetched in her whole appearance, something suggesting study, which might lead on to tax her with affectation at first. She was dressed in a strange way, not according to any established aesthetic eccentricity, but individually, strangely, as if in the clothes of an ancestress of the 17th century. Well, at first I thought it a kind of pose on her part, this mixture of extreme graciousness and utter indifference which she manifested towards me. She always seemed to be thinking of something else, and although she talked quite sufficiently, and with every sign of superior intelligence, she left the impression of having been as taciturn as her husband. In the beginning, in the few first days of my stay at Oakhurst, I imagined that Mrs. Oak was a highly superior sort of flirt and that her absent manner, her look, while speaking to you, into an invisible distance, her curious, irrelevant smile, were so many means of attracting and baffling adoration. I mistook it for the somewhat similar manners of certain foreign women, midst beyond English ones, which mean, to those who can understand, pay court to me. But I soon found I was mistaken. Mrs. Oak, I had not the faintest desire that I should pay court to her. Indeed, she did not honour me with sufficient thought for that, and I, on my part, began to be too much interested in her from another point of view to dream of such a thing. I became aware, not merely, that I had before me the most marvellously rare and exquisite and baffling subject for a portrait, but also one of the most peculiar and enigmatic of characters. Now that I look back upon it, I'm tempted to think that the psychological peculiarity of that woman might be summed up in an exorbitant and absorbing interest in herself, a narcissus attitude, curiously complicated with a fantastic imagination, a sort of morbid daydreaming, all turned inwards and with no outer characteristics save a certain restlessness, a perverse desire to surprise and shock. To surprise and shock more particularly her husband, and thus be revenged for the intense boredom of which his want of appreciation inflicted upon her. I got to understand this much little by little, yet I did not seem to have really penetrated the something mysterious about Mrs. Oak. There was a waywardness, a strangeness, which I felt, but couldn't explain, a something as difficult to define as the peculiarity of her outward appearance and perhaps very closely connected therewith. I became interested in Mrs. Oak, as if I had been in love with her, and I was not in the least in love. I neither dreaded parting from her, nor felt any pleasure in her presence. I had not the smallest wish to please or to gain her notice, but I had her on the brain. I pursued her, her physical image, her psychological explanation, with a kind of passion which filled my days. And prevented my ever feeling dull. The Oaks lived a remarkably solitary life. There were but few neighbours, of whom they saw but little, and they rarely had a guest in the house. Oak himself seemed every now and then seized with a sense of responsibility towards me. He would remark vaguely, during our walks and after dinner chats, that I must find life at Oakhurst horribly dull. His wife's health had accustomed him to solitude, and then, Also, his wife thought the neighbours a bore. He never questioned his wife's judgment in these matters. He merely stated the case as if resignation were quite simple and inevitable. Yet it seemed to me, sometimes, that this monotonous life of solitude, by the side of a woman who took no more heed of him than of a table or chair, was producing a vague depression and irritation in this young man, so evidently cut out for a cheerful, commonplace life, I often wondered how he could endure it at all, not having, as I had, the interest of a strange psychological riddle to solve and of a great portrait to paint. He was, I found, extremely good, the type of the perfectly conscientious young Englishman, the sort of man who ought to have been the Christian soldier kind of thing, devout, pure-minded, brave, incapable of any baseness, a little intellectually dense and puzzled by all manner of moral scruples. The condition of his tenants and of his political party, he was a regular Kentish Tory, lay heavy on his mind. He spent hours every day in his study doing the work of a land agent and a political whip, reading piles of reports and newspapers and agricultural treatises, and emerging for lunch with piles of letters in his hand, and that odd, puzzled look in his good, healthy face that deep gash between his eyebrows, which my friend, the mad doctor, calls the maniac frown. It was with this expression of face that I should have liked to paint him, but I felt that he would not have liked it, that it was more fair to him to represent him in his more wholesome pink and white and blonde conventionality. I was, perhaps, rather unconscientious about the likeness of Mr. Oak, I felt satisfied to paint it no matter how, I mean as regards character, and my whole mind was swallowed up in thinking how I should paint Mrs. Oak, how I could best transport onto canvas that singular and enigmatic personality. I began with her husband and told her frankly that I must have much longer to study her. Mr. Oak couldn't understand why it should be necessary to make a 101 pencil sketches of his wife before even determining in what attitude to paint her. But I think he was rather pleased to have an opportunity of keeping me at Oakhurst. My presence evidently broke the monotony of his life. Mrs. Oak seemed perfectly indifferent to my staying, as she was perfectly indifferent to my presence. Without being rude, I never saw a woman pay so little attention to a guest. She would talk with me sometimes by the hour, or rather let me talk to her but she never seemed to be listening. She would lie back in a big 17th-century armchair while I played the piano, with that strange smile every now and then in her thin cheeks, that strange whiteness in her eyes, but it seemed a matter of indifference whether my music stopped or went on. In my portrait of her husband, she did not take, or pretend to take, the very faintest interest. But that was nothing to me. I did not want Mrs. Oak to think me interesting. I merely wished to go on studying her. The first time that Mrs. Oak seemed to become at all aware of my presence as distinguished from that of the chairs and tables, the dogs that lay in the porch, or the clergyman or lawyer or strained neighbour who was occasionally asked to dinner, was one day, I might have been there a week, when I chanced to remark to her upon the very singular resemblance that existed between herself and the portrait of a lady that hung in the hall with the ceiling like the ship's hull. The picture in question was a full-length, neither very good nor very bad, probably done by some stray Italian of the early seventeenth century. It hung in a rather dark corner, facing the portrait, evidently painted to be his companion, of a dark man, with a somewhat unpleasant expression of resolution and efficiency, in a black Van Dyck dress. The two were evidently man and wife, and in the corner of the woman's portrait were the words... Alice Oak, daughter of Virgil Pomfret Esquire and wife to Nicholas Oak of Oakhurst, and the date, 1626, Nicholas Oak being the name painted in the corner of the small portrait. The lady was really wonderfully like the present Mrs. Oak, at least so far as an indifferently painted portrait of the early days of Charles I can be like a living woman of the nineteenth century. And there were the same strange lines of face and figure, the same dimples in the thin cheeks, the same wide-opened eyes, the same vague eccentricity of expression, not destroyed even by the feeble painting and conventional manner of the time. One could fancy that this woman had the same walk, the same beautiful line of nape of the neck and stooping head as her descendant. For I found that Mr. and Mrs. Oak, who were first cousins, were both descended from that Nicholas Oak and that Alice, daughter of Virgil Pomfret. But the resemblance was heightened by the fact that, as I soon saw, the present Mrs. Oak distinctly made herself up to look like her ancestress, dressing in garments that had the seventeenth-century look, nay, that were sometimes absolutely copied from this portrait. You think I'm like her, answered Mrs. Oak dreamily to my remark, and her eyes wandered off to that unseen something and the faint smile dimpled her thin cheeks. You are like her, and you know it. I may even say you wish to be like her, Mrs. Oak, I answered, laughing. Perhaps I do. And she looked in the direction of her husband. I noticed that he had an expression of distinct annoyance besides that frown of his. Isn't it true that Mrs. Oak tries to look like that portrait? I asked with a perverse curiosity. Oh, fudge! he exclaimed rising from his chair and walking nervously to the window. It's all nonsense, mere nonsense. I wish you wouldn't, Alice. Wouldn't what? asked Mrs. Oak with a sort of contemptuous indifference. If I am like that, Alice Oak, why, I am. And I am very pleased that anyone should think so. She and her husband are just about the only two members of our family, our mostly flat, stale and unprofitable family, that ever were in the least degree interesting. Oak grew crimson and frowned as if in pain. "'I don't see why you should abuse our family, Alice,' he said. "'Thank God our people have always been honourable and upright men and women!' excepting always Nicholas Oak and Alice's wife, daughter of Virgil Pomfret, Esquire,' she answered, laughing, as he strode out into the park. "'How childish he is!' she exclaimed when we were alone. "'He really minds, really feels disgraced by what our ancestors did two centuries and a half ago.' I do believe William would have those two portraits taken down and burned, if he weren't afraid of me, and ashamed of the neighbours. And as it is, these two people really are the only two members of our family that ever were in the least interesting. I'll tell you the story some day. As it was, the story was told to me by Oak himself. The next day, as we were taking our morning walk, he suddenly broke a long silence, laying about him all the time at the sere grasses with the hooked stick that he carried like the conscientious Kentishman he was, for the purpose of cutting down his and other folks' thistles. "'I I fear you must have thought me very ill-mannered towards my wife yesterday,' he said shyly. "'And indeed I know I was. "'Oak was one of those chivalrous beings "'to whom every woman, every wife, and his own, most of all, "'appeared in the light of something holy. But "'But I have a prejudice,' which my wife does not enter into, about raking up ugly things in one's own family. I suppose Alice thinks that it's so long ago that it really has no connection at all with us. She thinks of it merely as a picturesque story. I dare say many people feel like that. In short, I'm sure they do. Otherwise, there wouldn't be such lots of discreditable family traditions afloat. But I feel as if it were all one, whether it was long ago or not, when it's a question of one's own people. I would rather have it forgotten. I can't understand how people can talk about murders in their families and and ghosts and so forth. Have you any ghosts at Oakhurst, by the way? I asked. The place seemed as if it required some to complete it. I hope not, answered Oak gravely. His gravity made me smile. Why would you dislike it if there were? I asked. If there are such things as ghosts, he replied, I don't think they should be taken lightly. God would not permit them to be, except as a warning or a punishment. We walked on some time in silence, I wondering at the strange type of this commonplace young man, and half wishing I could put something into my portrait that should be the equivalent of this curious, unimaginative earnestness. Then Oak told me the story of those two pictures told it me about as badly and hesitatingly as it was possible for a mortal man. He and his wife were, as I have said, cousins, and therefore descended from the same old Kentish stock. The Oaks of Oakhurst, traced back to Norman, almost to Saxon times, far longer than any of the titled or better-known families of the neighbourhood. I saw that William Oak, in his heart, thoroughly looked down upon all his neighbours, We have never done anything particular, or been anything particular, never held any office, he said. But We've always been there, and apparently always done our duty. An ancestor of ours was killed in the Scotch Wars, another at Agincourt, mere honest captains. Well, early in the 17th century, the family had dwindled to a single member, Nicholas Oak, the same who had rebuilt Oakhurst in its present shape. This Nicholas appears to have been somewhat different from the usual run of the family. He had, in his youth, sought adventures in America, and seems, generally speaking, to have been less of a non-entity than his ancestors. He married, when no longer very young, Alice, daughter of Virgil Pomfret, a beautiful young heiress from a neighbouring county. It was the first time an oak married a pomfret, my host informed me, and the last time. The Pomfrets were quite different sort of people, Restless, self-seeking, one of them had been a favourite of Henry VIII. It was clear that William Oak had no feeling of having any pomfret blood in his veins. He spoke of these people with an evident family dislike, the dislike of an oak, one of the old, honourable, modest stock, which had quietly done its duty for a family of fortune-seekers and court minions. there had come to live near Oakhurst, in the little house, recently inherited from an uncle, a certain Christopher Lovelock, a young gallant and poet, who was in momentary disgrace at court for some love affair. This Lovelock had struck up a great friendship with his neighbours of Oakhurst. Too great a friendship, apparently, with the wife, either for her husband's taste or her own. Anyhow, one evening, as he was riding home alone, Lovelock had been attacked and murdered, ostensibly by highwaymen but as was afterwards rumoured by Nicholas Oak, accompanied by his wife, dressed as a groom. No legal evidence had been got, but the tradition had remained. They used to tell it to us when we were children, said my host in a hoarse voice, and to frighten my cousin, I mean my wife, and me with stories about lovelock. It's merely a tradition which I hope may die out, as I sincerely pray to heaven that it may be false. Alice, Mrs. Oak, you see, he went on after some time, doesn't feel about it as I do. Perhaps I'm morbid, but I do dislike having the old story raked up. And we said, no more on the subject. Everybody dies, don't they? So that was Oak of Oakhurst, parts one to three. There are in fact ten parts. It was recommended to me to read, and I'm glad it was by a listener and I'm really enjoying it. So it's the first time I've read the story and I'm I'm not reading any further. I've only got about three now, so I don't know what's going to happen. And I've done that deliberately and I haven't read any um, reviews or analyses of the story, so I don't actually know what happens, but I'm really enjoying it. Anyway, I've got my notes about uh, Vernon Lee in the story and I need to get those in a second. I just want to say if any of you are sitting there getting quietly enraged that I'm doing a commentary, as some people seem to be. Just do yourself a favour and stop listening. Just press stop. Don't force yourself to listen to the whole thing and get yourself all upset and then have to write um, an angry comment or a review. Just stop, and then we're all happy. And those of you who want to continue to listen to The Waffle, let's get cracking. So this is the second Vernon Lee story we've done. The first one was a, A Wicked Voice, which was set in Venice. If you'd listened to that, you'd heard something about Vernon Lee. So I'm going to, the biography is inevitably going to be the same or very similar, depending how I say it. So, Vernon Lee, despite sounding so masculine, Vernon Lee was actually a lady called Violet Paget. Or I don't, You think Paget or Paget? She was born in France in 1856 and died in Italy in, in 1935. Despite living most of her life on the continent of Europe, Vinetta Colby, her biographer, says that. Lee was English by nationality, French by an accident of birth, and Italian by choice. so as well as the ghost stories for which he is most famous, Vernon Lee was an essayist who wrote about travel and art and especially aesthetics i She did um, an extended essay about the the forest in um, Greek and Roman religion, which was pretty good um so her parents were globe trotters as well, or at least Europe trotters. And uh, they settled, when when she was 17, remember she was born in France, they settled in Florence, and she herself stayed pretty much around Florence until her death in 1935. She produced her first collection of essays when she was 24, and these dealt with Italian writers and dramatists, and she later wrote on William Shakespeare in Renaissance Italy. She was not very kind to some of her English compatriots, some of their artists. She didn't think much of the pre-Raphaelites, And she made fun of them in her 1884 novel, Mrs. Brown. She was a convinced pacifist. And she, like many women, think of uh, George Eliot, as many women, she thought that if she wrote as a man, and I think the Brontes originally, if she wrote as a man, she would be um, accepted and people would take her seriously. And if she wasn't, she wouldn't. So she was a feminist. She dressed mostly as a man. And although she didn't actually come out as a lesbian, which was very difficult in those days, She um, did have relationships with women. She also had some mental health problems, as we would call them these days, suffering from health anxiety. And she was quite cruel about other writers. So she was not very nice about Henry James and Edith Wharton. Now, interestingly, her prose is almost Jamesian sometimes. She writes, if you listen to her, Not as bad as he does or Faulkner or anybody like that. But what she does is she writes a sentence, she peppers it with clauses. So she'll she'll write a sentence and she'll have a clause that's tangential to that. She'll go off and then she'll have another one in the middle of that. And then by the time you get to it, you know, everything's been qualified so much. So what I found when I was reading it, it's different when you're reading it for the eye. But when you're reading it out loud, by the time we go to the last phrase, it felt quite disjointed. There are a couple of occasions like that. But her prose is very beautiful. She's a very lyrical writer. I say that in me. The... So, Henry James, um, you may know his brother William James. You probably don't know them personally, to be fair, nor me. But I was introduced to William James before, through psychology, before Henry James, really. I, know, I was more familiar with uh, William James, who was an absolute genius, really. Henry wrote to William, who was going to visit Florence where Bernan Lee lived and said she is the most able mind in florence as dangerous and uncanny as she is intelligent so watch yourself bro that was what that's about so here we are oak of oakhurst not set in italy set in england and i wonder how much she knew of england really but her observation of what we imagine society to be like is pretty seems pretty accurate so it starts and it is again a kind of frame story, it starts out with our narrator, the painter, whose name I haven't yet learned, talking to some unknown interlocutor and who clearly has has family in that part of Kent and knows the Oakhurst. So the first part he introduces in a very conversational way, which was actually really fun to, to read, um, to act almost, not that I'm an actor. We learn that his encounter with the Oaks has left an indelible mark on this man. You know, we learn early on that there's something about Mrs. Oak which is quite extraordinarily powerful. And he, and later on we find that he didn't love her, he had no romantic interest in her, but she compelled him in some other way. She's almost like, um, oh, let's not get all Jungian, but like the divine feminine, you know? If you, if those of you who are members have listened to my story about Dungarvan Castle on the members' videos of the YouTube channel, or in fact, under, I've got it on podcast, on Patreon and Substack as well. Well know I'm quite interested in that thing. Anyway, I digress. And that was you could see that as a sales plug, I suppose. Which I didn't totally mean it as that. So she does this really well. So she withholds a lot of information. We just drip, 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 drab fed it. Drip drop fed it. So we learn a bit and we kind of ooh, ooh. And this this creates suspense. Something has happened. So he can't he clearly can't he can't paint her now. Some, he's lost the opportunity. he doesn't know where the portrait of the husband has gone, so something disastrous has happened. Their home has been broken up, um, and it's as if some terrible fate has befallen them. He didn't even manage to finish the portrait. Why not? We don't know." And then he says, "Oh, I suppose the newspapers were full of it at the time. Ah, a scandal." And then he drops the thing. It really was stranger than anyone could have guessed. And because this appears in a collection of stories called uh, Hauntings, we're like, we as readers are primed to think, oh, strange equals supernatural. But of course, so far in the reading we've done, you've just listened to, there isn't anything supernatural, apart from the mention of ghosts, which isn't supernatural in itself, but is a, perhaps a foreshadowing. We know Alice Oak is dead and her end was strange but fitting. She didn't know, but she would have perhaps approved of this strangeness of it. And then he says, the painter says, she was sent to him from heaven, again this divine figure, or the other place. So who is this woman? You know, at this point I'm like, I want to know who she is. And he says, I don't normally tell this story, but but here I, here I go, I'm going to tell the story now. Mm. In the lead-up, Vernon Lee is very skillful in that. She portrays, she kind of denigrates our painter, our narrator, through his own voice. She presents him a bit of a, an artistic snob. He wears a velvet, velvet jacket, and he's very unkind initially to Mister Oak, uh, thinking him as a bore, as a squireen, you know, some some old-fashioned fuddy-duddy Tory, despite the fact he's a young guy. And he sets him sets the narrator up as this kind of um, really cultural snob. Some you can just imagine this bloke living, having a studio, wearing a velvet dra- jacket, thinking he's the the bee's knees, the coolest of the cool, although they didn't call it that in those days. Whereas Oak of Oakhurst is a really decent bloke. He's a really unassuming, solid, honourable, dutiful man who puts up with his wife's shenanigans and the fact that his wife looks down on him and and is nothing but loyal, nothing but good, nothing but kind. And Lee is skilful enough to, to tell us that, while telling us the opposite. She tells us that he's boring, etc. But we still become sympathetic, certainly I did, to Mr Oak, William Oak of Oakhurst. I was on his side, so I think that was really clever, I don't know. I think it was clever, you know. The, the painter thinks himself the super-duper cool guy, and Oak as a boring old toad. But in fact, the picture we get is that the painter is a bit of a snob. Uh, not Not a political snob, but a cultural snob and William Oak's actually a diamond geezer, although they probably wouldn't use those terms, a decent chap. I was listening to something, uh, watching a movie, actually, or film, as we call them. There's somebody talking about how scriptwriters work laying pipe. So what Vernon Lee is doing in all these bits is laying pipe, you know, build this, building us up to the story and managing to keep our attention, certainly mine, on the way, in part at least through... Beautiful, two really beautiful pieces for me, descriptively, the evocative pieces. First, the ride from the station in the carriage through the park of Oakhurst. It's the the oaks and the sheep sheltering from the rain under the oaks. is really beautiful to me. And then the next bit is the description of the house. This lyrical, beautiful description, particularly of him sitting... In his bedroom, in this old house with tapestries on the wall, there's the purple twilight crows, and there's a silvery clock coming up. And that is just transporting, really. So the things that Vernon does well are those, those fantastic descriptive bits, but also I think the characterizations top-notch as well. I don't know what's going to happen, but towards the end of Part 3, we start to get a bit of narrative so, we already know, we've already been tantalized. There's something weird about this woman, right? We don't know what. Oh, yeah, we get the 17th century um, ancestor, and we learn that's clearly why she wants her portrait painted. The fact that she's obsessed with this woman and um, wants her portrait painted, and the woman is in a portrait, is linked to me, I think. I, don't, I haven't read the story, but that's what I think. That's what I'm expecting. You know, Alice Oak, as I say in the notes, is pretty much a narcissist. I've just seen that in my notes, which is why I say it. And then towards the end, out of the blue, your man, our man, says, "Any ghosts, and William Oak, who's a decent cove. Oh, no, he says, but, you know, I don't think you should take them. He's a very serious young man. I don't, because God would not allow them, other than a warning or a punishment, And then we change the subject and talk about the the murder. So it seems to me we are being primed by that mention of ghosts. So It just comes out of the blue. oh ghosts. And we know, but we know that this is a ghost story because it's in a book called Haunting. So we're like, aha, this foreshadows something. But as to what it foreshadows, dear listener, we'll have to wait because I don't know. Um, I'm hoping to get the time to to do it all. it would be a long one, this. It might be three-parter even, but I'm enjoying it so far uh, quite a lot. Anyway, other news? Mm, yeah, we've got memberships started on the YouTube channel. I'll tell you a funny thing. I've been doing these mm, not quite two years. So I've recorded them all sorts of times, and I do these commentaries, and I waffle on, and I mention some contemporary things. And, you know, there's one I've just posted up on YouTube, which is about a year old. And I mentioned I was reading a book at the time. And people put, um, oh, this book you're reading. Well, I'm not reading it anymore. I was then. It's really weird, you know. I'm talking to you now, and for you, I'm in your present. But this might be in my past. That's a weird thought, isn't it? So in one, one of them, I had a cold. And people were saying... I hope, hope you get better. And I'm like, well, that cold was a year ago. And I haven't had a cold since because I've been um, <laughs> I've been wearing, gelling my hands a lot and not made, meeting anybody. It, just for the record, it's a beautiful few days we're having here at the beginning of June. And I had a lovely day out with my daughters yesterday in the Lake District. And we went to Castle Rig Stone Circle because Imogen's doing a project about stone circles for her art course. And I have my lovely young Catherine there who works too hard the a teacher it was nice just and we went for lunch in an italian restaurant there is no real connection apart from this story it was written by somebody in florence and it was very very splendid And um, we move in house in the throes of that it's going to take a few weeks works okay yeah everything's fine really i hope you're all right so yeah um memberships if you want if you want to join and get a member you get kind of Video stories on YouTube, that's the big news of the week. Join up on YouTube. Anyway, uh, even if you don't join, it's a pleasure to be able to read stories for you. Okay, bye-bye till more Oak of Oakhurst next time.